This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Barbara Ramirez. We want to remind you that this program broadcasts from the rightful lands of the Tiwa people. Tonight, we bring you the second episode from our three-part series showcasing our interns' presentations created to educate and inform all of us. This summer, DJ Media Justice interns researched and studied important topics and the disinformation that surrounds each of these areas. Then, they put together presentations. In tonight's production, we'll learn about the core issue at hand, disinformation, misinformation, and racialized disinformation. So, what do these terms mean? Stay tuned to learn from DJ Media Justice interns Jacqueline Wing, Emilio Bobalet, Elijah Cage, and Matas Jaber. This is such an important and relevant topic. Disinformation has been used as a weapon to cause harm historically. But today, we see how we are bombarded with information from unreliable sources with such devastating impacts. To help us grasp the broader understanding of this, one of the foremost leading experts on disinformation, misinformation, and media manipulation, Dr. Joan Donovan of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School, speaks with Generation Justice Director Roberta Rael. Before we start this informative program, let's listen to Fake French by Le Tigre, a song about sincerity and honesty. Disinformation has always been a powerfully destructive force in global communication. One false idea can spread instantly onto many vulnerable ears, as we have experienced with this pandemic. Disinformation can be deadly. This summer, DJ Media Justice interns Jacqueline Wing, Emilio Bobalet, Elisha Cage, and Matas Jaber researched this topic. And tonight, we bring you their presentation titled Disinformation, Misinformation, and Racialized Disinformation. Hello, my name is Elijah Cage. I'm 17 years old, a junior at La Cueva High School. My pronouns are he, him, and his. I identify as Black and Hispanic, and I've been with GJ for about three years now. And I'm going to hand it over to Emilio to introduce himself. Hi, my name is Emilio Bovale. I'm 15 years old. I go to Valley High School. My pronouns are he, him, his. I identify as Mexican. I've been with Generation Justice for about around three years now. I'm going to pass it on to Matas. Thank you, Emilio. My name is Matas Jaben. I'm 17 years old. I'm going to be a senior at La Cueva High School this year. And I've been with GJ for about five years now. I am a Palestinian American and my pronouns are he, him, his. I am not going to pass it on to Jacqueline. Hi, my name is Jacqueline Nguyen. I am 16 years old. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I identify as Vietnamese American and I am going to be a junior at St. Pius X High School and I've been with Generation Justice for two years. So our group is focusing our research on the broader umbrella topic of disinformation, 
We believe that disinformation can be so dangerous, not only to individuals and communities, but organizations as well. Disinformation is everywhere. And with social media, disinformation is becoming more widespread, reaching a larger audience at a quicker rate. Firstly, what is disinformation, misinformation, and racialized disinformation? Disinformation. Disinformation is information that is deliberately false or misleading, often spread for political gain, profit, or discredit a target individual, group, movement, or political party. Misinformation is information whose inaccuracy is unintentional and spread unknowingly. Racialized disinformation, so racialized disinformation campaigns use fake racial or ethnic identities to drive polarizations or are media manipulation campaigns that focus on race as a wedge issue. And these definitions were taken from Dr. Joan Donovan, who was a research director at Harvard University. So these are some examples of racialized disinformation in action. One of them is the Asian American model minority myth. It's a narrative created to push the idea that Asian Americans are more well-off with good education and jobs, and that because of this success, do not face racism or oppression. This narrative was created to drive a wedge between Asian American and other racial groups. And as an identified Vietnamese American, hearing about the model minority myth, which you know has always existed, but started coming up around the Stop Asian Hate movement, it made me feel very inferior. It's obvious that this idea does not come from the AAPI community as it only highlights the successes of Asian Americans and it ignores the struggles and obstacles that me and others who identify as Asian American or Pacific Islanders face. Another thing that people don't really remember is that our success doesn't come from privilege but hard work. I'm going to go ahead and pass it on to Elijah. Thank you, Jackie, for that example. The next example is Blacksit. It is a movement that was created on social media to promote to African-Americans that they should move to Africa. The accounts created for this were not actually Black created and was used with the purpose to mislead. This shows racialized disinformation due to the fact of someone else trying to make a group of race look bad and they are misleading people about someone of a different race. The next example is disinformation. Disinformation is everywhere in mainstream media. Here is one recent disinformation story that is going around. It is a conspiracy theory circulating that the COVID vaccine contains metal and makes the person injected magnetic. The last example is for misinformation. I will be sharing a personal misinformation story about the vaccine. So during the pandemic, we all heard stories and rumors about the vaccine, which were clearly not true. One of them was about the vaccine containing a chip. And I had heard a lot of religious people explaining that the chip was the mark of the beast. And for those that don't know what the mark of the beast is, it is a religious belief that in a certain time, Jesus will have came back and so we'll have the devil or Satan. And we will all have a choice to get the mark of the beast, which would be on your right wrist or on your forehead. And a lot of people had said that this chip was the mark of the beast. But, you know, our research shows and, you know, we have a lot of facts that the vaccine does not contain a chip at all. But 
this isn't disinformation. This is misinformation due to the fact that religious people were sharing this information because they were scared and they were not sure on what was going on. And they just wanted to make sure that we would be okay and make sure that we knew what was going on. But this was just misinformation because of them being scared. So that is my example for misinformation. And now I will pass it over to Mataz. Thank you, Elijah, for your personal example on misinformation. I am now going to explain how disinformation is dangerous. Disinformation can create a lot of harm towards a community or an individual. Here's an example of harmful disinformation. Right, and then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. So it'd be interesting to check that. As you heard in that clip, 45th U.S. President Donald Trump said, by injection inside or almost a cleaning, because you can see it gets in the lungs and it does a tremendous number on the lungs. So it would be interesting to check that. This is a response he made regarding COVID. According to U.S. News, people took this information and did so, resulting in people drinking bleach, believing it would protect them from COVID-19, which is insanely dangerous, false, and could even cause death. Although he didn't directly say, drink bleach and it will protect you from COVID, he opened the idea without medical backing. What role does social media play in disinformation? Social media plays a large role in the spread of disinformation. Dr. Joan Donovan talks about the research she does surrounding media and disinformation. She talks about a fake letter about Maxine Waters that was made and circulated around the internet for multiple months by troll accounts. Although the letter was debunked multiple times, she tried even taking it down from Twitter, but it wasn't taken down. And their response was, sorry, we can't do anything because it might be true. How could we help to educate our community and other youth? What individuals, families, and communities can do? Learn to identify and avoid sharing health misinformation. Make sure the information shared is accurate by credible sources. If you're unsure, do not share. Engage with friends and family about misinformation and address it. If someone you know spreads misinformation, listen with empathy, ask questions, and try alternative explanations. Also, work as a community or group to stop misinformation. What can educators do to stop misinformation? Use evidence based on education that is resilient towards misinformation. Allow quality access to programs in informational literacy and inform students and the public of tactics used by those who misinform and spread it online. I'm now gonna pass it on to Amelia. Who's fighting disinformation? Society is fighting disinformation. Why? Because society is the biggest victim of disinformation due to social media, fake news, and etc. We depend on the truth, but we can never tell whether we're getting the truth or false news. Local news stations are also a victim due to big corporations who act as most of their news providers. Due to some big corporations providing disinformation, local news provides the same disinformation as well. How to detect fake news? Consider the source. Read beyond the headlines. Check the author. What's the support? Check the date. Is this a joke? Check bias. Consult with experts. Here we have a video of the Surgeon General explaining how misinformation can cause a public health crisis. Today, I issued a Surgeon General's advisory on the dangers of health misinformation. Surgeon General advisories are reserved for urgent public health threats 
And while those threats have often been related to what we eat, drink, and smoke, today we live in a world where misinformation poses an imminent and insidious threat to our nation's health. Health misinformation is false, inaccurate, or misleading information about health, according to the best evidence at the time. During the COVID-19 pandemic, health misinformation has led people to resist wearing masks in high-risk settings. It's led them to turn down proven treatments and to choose not to get vaccinated. This has led to avoidable illnesses and death. Simply put, health information has cost us lives. We are saying we expect more from our technology companies. We're asking them to operate with greater transparency and accountability. We're asking them to monitor misinformation more closely. We're asking them to consistently take action against misinformation super spreaders on their platforms. On a personal note, uh, it's painful for me to know that nearly every death we are seeing now from COVID-19 could have been prevented. I say that as someone who has lost 10 family members to COVID-19 and who wishes each and every day that they had had the opportunity to get vaccinated. Are you seeing any indication that there could be nation states uh, behind this disinformation? Well, Andrew, thank you for the question. The misinformation that we're seeing comes from multiple sources. Yes, uh, there is disinformation that is coming from bad actors. But what is also important to point out is that much of the misinformation that is circulating online is often coming from individuals who don't have bad intentions, but who are unintentionally sharing information that they think might be helpful. And that's why in this advisory, uh, we make it very clear that among the things we're asking individuals to do is to pause before they share, to check sources. And if they're not sure if a source is credible, to not share. You know, one of the things we uh, have said, again, is that when it comes to misinformation, not sharing is caring, unlike what many of our moms taught us uh, earlier in life. The Surgeon General also agrees that misinformation is a huge threat to American health, and it is something to avoid and look into. Anyhow, I'm going to pass it over to Jacqueline. Thank you, Emilio. We hope from this presentation that you know a little bit more about what disinformation is, how harmful it can be, and be more cautious with the information that you receive or share. I would like to thank my team, Emilio, Elijah, and Mataz. We all worked so hard, and you guys did such an amazing job. And I feel so lucky to have worked with such respectful, hardworking gentlemen like yourselves. Thank you so much, Jacqueline Wing, Emilio Bobalet, Elisha Cage, and Matas Jaber, for educating us about the dangers of disinformation and for providing ways to avoid spreading it ourselves. Remember, if you're not sure if something is factual, do not share it. Now, we bring you the song Give Me Some Truth by John Lennon. What is real? What is truth and how do we know it? What is being manipulated and how do we know what to do with that? To continue exploring how this information and media manipulation occurs and impacts every aspect of our lives, we now have Generation Justice Director Roberta Rael speaking with Dr. Joan Donovan, an expert in the field. 
This is Roberta Rael with Generation Justice, and I have the great pleasure this evening to speak with Dr. Joan Donovan, the Research Director of the Shorenstein Center on Media Politics and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, where she also leads the Technology and Social Change Project. Dr. Donovan is a leader in research of online extremism, media manipulation, and disinformation campaigns. Her work can be found in publications such as The Data Science Landscape and The Unlike Us Reader. Her work has been featured in NPR, The Washington Post, New York Times, Rolling Stone, The Columbia Journalism Review, The Atlantic, ABC and NBC, and many more. Such a pleasure to have you with us this evening, Dr. Donovan. Welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Would you mind just sharing a little bit more about yourself? Well, I just feel like I'm in a I'm in a very weird crossroads in my life and career in the midst of a pandemic where the work that me and my team are doing at the Shorenstein Center is um, more visible and I think probably more important than ever. And at the same time, I'm stuck in my house every day, hanging with my spouse and my two cats and just trying to keep up just like everybody else with uh, what's going on in this world. And so it's a strange position to be in. I can relate to some of that, but I personally am so grateful for the work that you are able to share. And um, if the pandemic has helped your work get out further, let alone the political moment that we're in, I'm grateful for that. So I'd love to know more about the technology and social change project that you lead. Um, Can you tell us more about that particular work that you're doing? Yeah, so the team has been growing over the last two years. Me and sort of one of my closest collaborators, Brian Friedberg, have been at this for a few years. And prior to this, we were at Data and Society. But when we came over to Harvard Kennedy School to do this research, we really wanted to look at really the social shaping of technology, how technology is informed by the ways people use it and how it incorporates those uses and those many innovations and disruptions and then becomes something different. And so when we think about technology as a factor in social change, we really see it as a part and parcel of the way in which our entire world is made up. And right now, we're at this really strange inflection point for the internet and for social media, which is why we're very focused on media manipulation and disinformation at this stage, because for many years, you know, not a lot of people took social media seriously. It was something for the kids to do. You know, they shared their memes. No, I'm joking. They shared their memes. And, uh, you know, but for the most part, the internet and social media became serious business when politicians and journalists and celebrities and other newsworthy and influential folks, including media elites, political elites, started to use it in their campaigns, in their everyday work life. And we've seen the internet move from a kind of fringe entertainment hobby into the core of capitalism and into the core of our media and even into the core of our politics. And that for us is a really big shift and a major focus of the last several years of our research. Will you speak to the intersection between social media platforms, capitalism, and power? 
Yeah, I think that for quite a while, when we think about power, we think about a few different ways of conducting influence. And the media is one way of conducting influence. And when I say media, I mean more mainstream outlets and and the the way in which we conceptualized media even back, you know, in the 90s or even pre-platforms in the early aughts didn't include social media in this way. And it didn't really include the internet or blogs. But what we did see, you know, as media gatekeepers started to become influenced by the internet, they started to adopt different models for, you know, they'll put a few articles online and there had been some articles that were only for the newspaper, right? This kind of thing. And to some degree, cable news has relented in adapting to the internet. They just will broadcast their straight channel. Um, We're now starting to see cable news start to make product specifically for the internet. Uh, We've seen them move into podcast markets. But when we talk about the media as a gatekeeper for influence, it used to be a lot harder for politicians to get noticed. And unless you were indicted, (laughs) unless you had had a a sex scandal, uh, there was not a lot of column inches dedicated to regular old policy debate. There was not a lot of column inches devoted to campaigns, especially down ballot campaigns. And the paper would, you know, primarily focus on scandal. But what the internet has done in some ways is made politicians into media entrepreneurs in the sense that they see media as a vehicle. And because social media allows us such broad access to journalists now, politicians by and large will conduct online campaigns and some of them veer into media manipulation and other kinds of hoaxing and and whatnot just to get clicks just to get recognition. I'll give you an example of this. A couple years ago, Maxine Waters was running against a Republican challenger who was a young guy named Omar Navarro. And he was someone that had been hanging out with the alt-right crowd, was part of a group that would go around LA area and basically talk politics. They would show up at political events and say and do some outrageous things trying to get attention to Omar Navarro's campaign. And then one day on his Twitter account, he starts circulating this letter. It looks like a letter coming from Maxine Waters on congressional letterhead that basically says, Dear Bank, I need a million dollars. And if you give me a million dollars, I'm going to bring 38,000 refugees to Southern California, and they're all going to need mortgages. So send money. And that forgery was something that he was using to get attention. It got covered in the LA Times. It got debunked a bunch of times. But for many, 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 many months, it remained online and was being circulated by different troll accounts, automated accounts as proof of Maxine Waters' corruption. And she tried and tried and tried to get it removed, messaged uh, every civil society organization you can think of, as well as Twitter, even the FBI. And at that time, platform companies, Twitter was saying, well, you know what? It could be true. Who knows? Not our job. Things have changed. Platform companies were not ready for media manipulation because they did not see that disingenuous 
folks would be able to turn their platform into their own advantage. And so what that that story and, and hundreds of others point us to is that platform companies only now are starting to mature into their responsibility as distributors, where we used to have rules about distributing information over the airwaves and over cable and the internet as it was regulated and designed never really took up their public interest obligations. And as a result, we're seeing the consequences of that, which is that fake news travels further, faster, penetrates deeper into audiences than the truth. And we're now in this inverse universe uh, with social media where you would hope that good investigative journalism that reveals something about power is going to win the day. But what you get is grift and hoaxes and, you know, this stuff with the Hunter Biden laptop is like lifetime movie level shenanigans. And so I think platform companies are now realizing that they're getting got and eventually it's going to affect their bottom line. And this stuff does show up in the stock market. Thank you for that. And what a great example. And I just also want to just point out that platform companies are only, I think, noticing that they need to change because there's been tremendous pushback from lots of media justice, media reform organizations and organizations committed to justice, pushing on some of that. The fact that there's real danger with how they've been conducting business all of these years. No doubt. I mean, the Change the Terms Coalition for years has been pushing them to deal with the hate speech issue. You know, Facebook finally realized that unchecked anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial leads to networked conspiracy theories like QAnon basically taking over their brand. But I agree with you that if it hadn't been for media justice-oriented groups sounding the alarm over and over and over again and producing different public pressure campaigns, we just would not be here having this discussion at all. So in your research and in your study, how does 2020 stack up for disinformation? Is it just our perception that it's worse than ever or is it really worse than ever? It is worse and different. So I hesitate to talk about things in terms of amounts because there's always been, you know, I think one of the main reasons why we love the internet is because it's full of gossip and rumor and all kinds of things that maybe we shouldn't be looking at. But it's different because it's really come to threaten the trust we have in institutions that really matter, institutions that take care of us, like public health. You know, I've been talking to more doctors and public health professionals than I ever have my entire life. And I have a background in medical sociology and I worked in mental health counseling for a couple of years. But doctors and public health professionals are horrified by the way in which people are getting medical advice and taking it. And the advice they're getting is really dangerous. So for instance, we knew early on that there was a conspiracy theory really gaining steam called the pandemic. And the idea was pretty simple, that Democrats had colluded 
to take down Trump by any means necessary by bringing a pandemic to America. Now, why they would get Italy involved and all these other countries, you know, I don't know. But if you believe this conspiracy theory, you have to get rid of all kinds of sense. But that meme and that term started circulating online and people started tagging different bits and pieces of information. Oh, this is just part of the pandemic. Dr. Fauci is in on it. Him and Gates and Soros, you know, all of the same old tropes that we've heard for years. And then something really strange happened. The meme became a movie. And so a documentarian had put together a 25-minute segment involving this known anti-vax activist and disgraced scientist and started circulating it online. But they didn't just put it up online and hope people saw it before it was taken down. They made a website and used a tactic we call distributed amplification. So on that website were instructions for how to download the movie and re-upload it to your personal account so that when platform companies did take it down for dangerous medical misinformation, you, as the viewer and activist, would re-upload it. And what it did was it really drew people in because they all had to put something on the line. You know, we talk about mobilization and protest. When people go to a protest and they get suppressed by police, it's not something that really deters them or some people in a way. Sometimes it really locks you in and says, this issue really matters. And And if they're going to shut me up, I'm going to say it louder. And that psychology is at play here where the makers knew that their documentary, quote unquote, was going to be taken down by platforms. And that became a media or political opportunity for them to spread this video even further and faster. And so when we talk about what's happening here, we also have to think about what are the institutions that people trust And why is that trust being eroded? And a big piece of it has to do with the way in which information is distributed, the lack of context in which people receive that information, and then what people are willing to do with that information. And when you get bad medical advice and you don't know it's bad medical advice, people change their behaviors really fast. And so we saw you know, different forms of that where people, you know, the whole debate about masks and if you should wear one or not. That's a dead issue amongst scientists. They all believe, you know, scientists that are doing science believe you should wear a mask. But politically, it is a live wire. Thank you so much, Joan, for that great example and that great explanation of how disinformation can really disrupt democracy and society. Along those lines, I'd love to talk with you a little bit about how disinformation campaigns really impact BIPOC communities or how BIPOC communities are targeted for disinformation? It's a good question. Uh, We just released our website at mediamanipulation.org and it's got a bunch of different case studies in it. But one of them in particular is a favorite of mine that is um, a campaign called Blacksit. The campaign was what's called Digital Blackface which is to say that there were groups of different kinds of actors. Some of them, though, were people that were part of the American far right who realized that you can steal the legitimacy of a group of people if you are to just mimic the patterns of behavior that they have in their styles of posting and the kinds of things that they retweet and like. 
this has been iterated and this technique is very well seasoned where different operatives will impersonate people of color online. And so when it came down to it, several of these campaigns to pretend to be Black people online have ended because Black women in particular have sought it out and have really honed their skills as investigators and can root this out. I'll give you one example of an early version of this that some people might remember, which is Gay Girl in Damascus, which was a blog that one day the gay girl in Damascus during a very tense moment in Syria disappeared. And people were thinking, oh my God, she's been disappeared by the government. This is terrible. What are we going to do? And investigative journalists started to get on the case. They were like, this blogger has just disappeared. How could this be? And through looking into the story, they found out that the blog was actually being run by an American man living abroad, a white American man, who wanted to have a voice on particular issues, uh, issues that were important, but knew that their legitimacy as an American white male would be questioned, their motives would be questioned. So they invented this entire personality and this entire person so as to be able to participate in a really, you know, kind of sick drama in a way. And it wasted a bunch of resources of journalists who were trying to get down the rabbit hole. And, you know, I'd love to conclude on that point, which is to say that there is a true cost to misinformation. Journalists who are investigating manipulation and disinformation on these platforms could be doing other things. Budgets are tight. Resources are low. And the fact that they, as well as public health professionals, as well as law enforcement and other first responders, and we saw with the rumors about Antifa setting wildfires that firemen were wasting time and resources trying to get to the bottom of these rumors. And in civil society, who've now had to develop these really robust teams to monitor disinformation on their issues, all of these other institutes are paying the price for disinformation. And so I think it's really important that we think about, well, what kind of social media do we want and how do we uninvent the social media system that we have now? Dr. Donovan, what are the most effective ways that we can fight disinformation? When it comes to thinking about what can we do, I think we have to understand that we are more powerful together than any one of us are alone. And we have to be cautious of the kinds of disinformation that we engage in. Sometimes it's better to ignore it. Sometimes their trolls are trying to get a rise out of you. But in instances where you see disinformation affecting people in your community, approach with compassion. People are tricked. People are deluded. This stuff is made to trick you. And so it's really important that you understand that people don't just wind up here because, you know, they just fell into something, but rather these messages are strategic. They're created in a way so as to draw people in. Some of them use psychological tricks, you know, to kind of stick the point. And so it's really important that we approach each other with dignity and understand that some of this we're not going to be able to fix. And the other thing, of course, that we can do is 
participate in different campaigns like Disinformation Awareness Week to raise awareness and raise up the research and the voices of people that are fighting against media manipulation and disinformation. And through public education and through compassion, I do think that we can get a hold on some of this. But ultimately, the ball is still in the court of platform companies who need to take ownership and come up with a serious plan for not letting their products become weaponized against society. Dr. Joan Donovan, thank you so very much for this time with us at Generation Justice in our community in New Mexico. Thank you for your brilliant work for putting together a team of people who are as committed as you are to holding up truth and to helping us to know what to do in these critical moments that we're in right now. Thank you. And thank you to your listeners. I know it's not always easy to have to to hear these things, so appreciate the attention. Dr. Donovan, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for informing us about the intersection between social media, capitalism, and power. It is absolutely crucial to check sources to make sure we are getting the facts. Now, here is Policy of Truth by the Pache Mode. Welcome back to Generation Justice. It is so important that we keep getting the truth about COVID and vaccinations out, especially because so many in our community are not yet vaccinated or can't get vaccinated because they're too young. We still need to work together to protect each other and to help end this deadly global pandemic. You can keep up with new COVID-19 regulations and cases from the New Mexico Department of Health by visiting their website at cv.nmhealth.org. Again, that's cv.nmhealth.org. If you haven't gotten vaccinated, the first thing you need to do is register. You can visit cvvaccine.nmhealth.org to sign up. Then you can fill out your profile information and wait for your turn. Once you receive a notification, you can schedule your appointment and get vaccinated. Again, you can visit cvvaccine.nmhealth.org to register and to learn more about the vaccine. The CDC's masking guidelines recommend that people should wear masks indoors even when fully vaccinated in counties where COVID-19 transmission is substantial or high. In New Mexico, that applies to 14 counties, including Bernalillo, Sandoval and Valencia counties in the metro area. So mask up, keep washing your hands, practice social distancing, and remember, COVID-19 vaccines are an essential tool to help stop the global deadly pandemic. Now let's get back to some amazing music. Here is Susana Baca's version of Hasta la Raíz. Yo te llevo dentro hasta la raíz y por más que crezca 
estar aquí Aunque yo me oculte tras la montaña Y encuentre un campo lleno de caña No habrá manera mi rayo de luna Que tú te vayas We hope you've enjoyed this hour of education We'd like to thank our DJ Media Justice interns and tonight's presenters, Jacqueline Wynn, Emilio Bobalet, Elisha Cage, and Matas Jaber. A special thank you to our guest, Dr. Joan Donovan of the Shorenstein Center at Harvard Kennedy School for your important research work on this information. Tonight's Hour of Radio was produced by Roberta Rael with production assistance from myself, Barbara Ramirez, and thank you to our social media managers, Madumita Santana and Kyle Gonzalez. We want to give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We could not do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud, Apple, and Google Podcasts. We're also active on social media, so find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and follow our playlist on Spotify. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. And of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. Our last song of the night is Holy Water by Wake Self. I am Barbara Ramirez. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Have a wonderful night, New Mexico, and remember to get vaccinated and continue wearing your mask. This pine cone in my brain, got my eyes open, I'm saying It's that wake up, that wake up, that breaking free from them chains It's that welcome to a new age, this right here feel like a new wave uh, Third eye open wide, no more ride, I decalcified Open up them lotus petals, higher freak, no lower levels Find the holy temple in your vehicle, your vessel Listen, know yourself, soul is free, OBE, OBE, lucid dream, human